0: You're listening to a best-of edition of Stacey on the Right. This is Stacey on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Uh,
1: so So first of all, the piece acknowledges that that is probably not true, but it might be. And one of the reasons I wrote this is you need to take seriously some of these low-probability, high-impact scenarios. You know, before the election, sort of everyone heard that Hillary Clinton had about an 80% chance of winning, and we all just treated it like that meant 100% and didn't think about what would that 20% alternative really mean. So that's part of what I'm doing with, this, with, with aspects of this piece, like this trip to Moscow, you know, what would it mean if it would, if it really went that deep? Now, there's a lot of ways in which this scandal could be really bad and not go that deep. But I think you need to consider that for another reason, which is that everyone always says, well, this has been Trump's view forever. All this stuff he's saying about the Western allies splitting us apart from the West and, and how, he's, how he's sort of saying well, you know, we should let them go their own way. That's just what he's always thought. It's not really what he's always thought. It's what he's thought since 1987. He never thought that before then, or at least he never said it before then. And in 1987, is when he, he went to Moscow and he's feted by the Russians and tours Moscow. And then he comes back. Then he starts talking about running for president for the first time. And then he starts talking for the first time about how our allies are a bunch of freeloaders and we should kick him to the curb. Yeah, and we should say that he is, I mean, I just want to be clear here, he is really consistent on that point, right? The, the idea that this sort of zero-sum view that our yeah. allies are free-riding and we're paying for it. He takes out full-page ads at $100,000. He sounds identical to how he does now, right? The idea that, like, we're getting abused, we're getting taken for granted, and we're paying for other people's defense.
2: Welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio. Go to those websites, check them out. We have a poll question up over there as well at urbanfamilytalk.com. Okay, so Lindsey Graham, here's his quote. Putin is not your friend. He says that on TV, directing that comment to President Trump. And, you know, I'm not always like I'm not a totally 100 percent against Lindsey Graham. He's a bit too moderate for me, but he sometimes can be very, very astute on uh, international issues. So, you know, he's it's not like I'm totally against him. But come on. Why does he constantly try to characterize the president as being too friendly with Russia? Jonathan Chait, who's you, you just heard him there um, talking about this piece that he wrote for New York magazine where he describes the president. He, he goes back and he it's like a person who doesn't know the Bible and doesn't actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ, can go through the Bible and cherry-pick different scriptures to justify anything, to justify slavery, abusing your wife, abusing children, uh, you know, anything you can think of, you can find a scripture, cut it out, and use it to support something that is totally unbiblical and ungodly, which is why we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, in all knowledge going forward, checking the scriptures against scriptures and remembering what Jesus Christ came here to do, and that, that the Bible is his word of truth, the sword of truth. But I know you've been in this before, where someone will take a Bible verse and completely take it out of context and use it to justify some sin, and you're like, eh, they didn't want that thing. That, you, that doesn't mean what you think it means. That's, that's similar to what he's doing here. He went back and found the time that the president visited Russia, he then said everything after he visited Russia is attributable to that moment. When we all know that, sure, you can have a life-changing event. You can have a life-changing trip or interaction with a group of people that changes your perspective on things. I mean, I'm sitting here. I was, I was a liberal once. My first vote ever was for Bill Clinton, second term. I, you know, So this, this isn't a situation where I'm saying people can't change or they can't have life-changing moments. But what Jonathan Chade is doing is he's saying Donald Trump's life-changing moment was when he visited Russia. The reason it's life-changing is because, first of all, let's take the end first. The end is we know he's a Russian agent. So working back from there, what facts and things can we find that fit into that assumption? And that's how we're going to justify what we're saying here. Now, I think it's funny that every time you have Lindsey Graham tell President Trump, Putin's not your friend, Jonathan Chait, uh, New York Magazine, Trump is a Russian asset since 1987, Joe Scarborough, stop working for Russia, James Clapper, President Trump is a Russian spy. These are not inconsequential people. James Clapper used to be the head of DNI. Joe Scarborough, he has a, he's, a host on, uh, um, he's a host on MSNBC. He also was a sitting member of Congress. Um, He's a respected broadcaster. He's internationally known. Uh, You know, Jonathan Chait, again, New York magazine writer. He's someone who, if he wants to be on television, he only has to send an email and he's there. And of course, Lindsey Graham. These are not inconsequential people. And they're talking about the president of the United States who is under investigation. But now that we know who started the investigation and how it was brought to be, it's clearly a witch hunt. Now, people will say, It's not a witch hunt. It's not. But they're not people we should take seriously because when you find out that the individuals who are doing the investigating are all exchanging tens of thousands of emails and text messages about how they hate the person being investigated and they have to bring him down, come hook or come crook, that's an indicator that it's a witch hunt. And if you don't believe that, take Donald Trump's name out of the sentence and put your name there and see how that feels. You would not want people investigating you to be partial to, uh, partially against you. So they, you want them to be impartial. Let me rephrase that. People who are investigating other people need to be impartial. They need to have no personal animus towards the, the, uh, the target of the investigation. If they have personal animus, they are supposed to recuse themselves or remove themselves from the investigation because our Constitution guarantees you due process, which assumes that you are innocent until there's a preponderance of evidence that proves you guilty when presented to a jury of your peers. That's that's 101, America 101 right there. And for people who don't believe that, I mean, that's not our fault that you don't understand the, the system of government that you live under. You're blessed to be under it, but you don't get it. So you got all these really important people, and it's not like they just start saying this last week. They've been beating this drum nonstop since 2016. He's a Russian agent. He's doing this. He's doing that. So you would think if, Donald Trump was a Russian agent, he'd be fine with Germany and other European nations giving 70 percent of their energy business to Russia. Wouldn't that satisfy his his uh, his aims? If we assume he's a Russian agent and that's the bedrock truth and we work our way backwards, every action he's taken since he's been in public life in mid 2015, when he declared his intention to run for the presidency, should support the assertion that 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 has been made. If everything points to him being a Russian agent, why is he arguing with Angela Merkel in public and embarrassing her about giving 70 percent of her energy business to the Russians? Something here doesn't add up. So here's President Trump. He's schooling the NATO allies on the difference between trade. So in other words, I have 10 candles. You have 10 lighters. I'm going to sell you five of my candles, I'm going to, you know, buy five of your lighters. That's trade energy is where you're buying natural resources from another nation. And that's something that once you get into contracts like that, that becomes an entrenched relationship because energy requirements, like you don't have to buy candles. If you like scented candles, like I do, you buy them when the budget permits, you don't skip buying beef and, and, you know, eggs and cheese and milk to buy scented candles. But you will skip buying expensive cuts of beef and expensive, you know, types of, of extras like sushi and, and you know, uh, seafood to keep your lights on, to keep your gas running, to keep your, uh, your what, electric going so you can have electricity in your home. Do you see the difference there? So the relationships that nation states get into for their energy needs are matters of national security and they go to the heart of allies. You would want to make those kinds of relationships with allies. Your country protects my country and has done so since the last world war. I want to offer you the opportunity to have our energy business before I go to someone who is technically my foe under the NATO arrangement that we all live with. That is what Donald Trump expected to happen. But instead, because Angela Merkel has a whole lot of negative feelings towards Donald Trump, she took that business to her actual foe. Her foe on paper, her foe on r- in real life, her actual legitimate enemy, which is Russia. She took them the business and gave it to him. And Donald Trump was hearing none of it. It's number four.
1: But uh, how on- can you be together when a country is getting its energy from? the person you want protection against or from the group that you want protection?
2: Because we understand that uh, when we stand together, also in dealing with Russia, we are stronger. I think what we have seen is that... No, you're
1: just making Russia richer. Well not dealing with Russia, you're making Russia
2: richer. I think that even during the Cold War, uh, NATO allies were trading with uh, Russia. Then there have been uh, disagreements
3: about what kind of uh, trade arrangements we should uh, should
1: go with. I think trade is wonderful. I think energy is a whole different story. I think energy is a much different story than normal trade. And you have a country like Poland that won't accept the gas. You take a look at some of the countries, they won't accept it because they don't want to be captive to Russia. But Germany, as far as I'm concerned, is captive to Russia because it's getting so much of its energy from Russia. So we're supposed to protect Germany, but they're getting their energy from Russia. Explain that. And it can't be explained, you know.
2: Did you hear what he said? So for someone who is constantly characterized as being uh, unprepared, someone who doesn't prepare enough, he eats too much McDonald's or whatever. This guy really knows how to support his assertions. He's sitting there across the table from him and the leader of the NATO alliance. He's like, yeah, but we're stronger when we're together and we're not always going to agree on trade issues. And Donald Trump was like, excuse me. This isn't a trade issue. This isn't you buying, you know, a thousand toilets from Russia. This is a deal where they give 70% of their energy business to the state most likely to run over them with tanks and carpet bomb them if given the opportunity. The minute the last asset of United States military hardware got on a, a freighter and was shipped out of the European continent... Russia would move every single submarine within the vicinity to all of the bordering nations and they would take it over. There's not a doubt in my mind. You could ask war college experts. You could go to the Pentagon. You could ask for a briefing on one of the local meetings that occurs regionally across this country on a quarterly basis between national security experts and those who are in these various industries that have to do with our defense. And every one of them would tell you that without a United States presence in Europe, Europe would be little Russia within weeks. The only reason that Russia doesn't move on those nations is because of us. And so, hey, dance with the one who brought you. Who buttered that bread? America. Who saved your bacon the last time you were in trouble? America. So don't sit there and act like you didn't understand what you were doing, Angela Merkel, when you went and made that huge, big, consequential national security impacting deal on who you were going to buy your natural gas from, especially when Americans are putting down natural gas like nobody's business. That is our largest, fastest growing sector in the energy market. We had to make up the difference because Barack Obama wouldn't let us get oil off of federal lands. He was shutting things down faster than Americans could pick it up. So what do we do? The private sector responded. They, not, they didn't just respond. They sprung into action, putting natural gas on the forefront, employing Americans, bringing towns back from the brink of literally extinction. And now we are a major player in the natural gas energy market internationally. And we have the resources. We have the natural gas. We have the ability to get it to you all you have to do is say let's do some business and so in the face of that I mean it's not like we're like can can you can you do some natural gas business with us just give us 10 years to get our stuff together you know that's not even anything Americans would let come out of their mouths they are over there right now trying to make these deals they have been for the past few years and Germany knew it but they did this because they wanted to put their finger in Trump's eye and he's like you can't reach my eye we're too big We're too tall for you to reach our eye. You can't put your finger in our eye, but I can put you on blast in front of national media, international media for doing this deal. When we're the ones who have our boots on the ground, our troops getting blown up in nightclubs, our troops raising their kids overseas, having their families overseas like our family did when we were over there. My dad was supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States, stationed in Germany. My family lived there for 15 years. We spent money on the German economy. We lived there. We loved it there. And the German people, I don't, I don't blame them at all, except, you know, they keep electing Angela Merkel. But this is about understanding that it, it was people like my father on active duty serving in the military overseas in Germany and France and England that keep Russia over there on their continent. Yeah, they played around with Crimea a little bit, but that's about as far as they could get. And they only did that because Barack Obama was president under George Bush. They wouldn't have danced that dance. They wouldn't have even put toeholds over there because they knew what would happen with the cowboy, as they like to call him. We are the defining and definitive force in Europe for maintaining peace and stability. And that is what Donald Trump was pointing out at that breakfast and We've not had a president who's willing to put that information out there the way that he did. We've not had that. And that's why you see the people in the media spinning like tops and losing their minds. They can't stand it. It's too much alpha male going on. They want some limp-wristed, you know, lily-livered foreign policy like they had last go-round. Time for that's up. And it's time for NATO to step to the table and meet us where we are and treat us with respect for what we provide for them, which is safety and security. Be right back with more.
4: Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I'm reading through the Old Testament now, and I'm coming to places that are named that I see on our Israel tour every March. It's really fascinating to think that Jericho existed way back in the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, and I can visit there today. The same can be said for Jerusalem. The Bible literally comes to life when you visit Israel, the Holy Land Now we're going in March My wife Allison and I, we lead these tours every March So if you would like to go with us You need to go to the website and check it out It's twholyland.com twholyland.com If you want a brochure sent to your mailbox Just call us at 800-FAMILIES Option 5 That's 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S Option 5 And we'll send you a brochure
5: Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. I once asked the president of a very large, complex organization, how do you keep it all together? How do you stay on top of all of this? He looked at me and said, Crawford, the weight is too much for me to carry. That's why I have to give it all to him. He said, if I take my eyes off the Lord, I would be crushed by the load. It's sobering to remember that God doesn't give us merely difficult tasks. No, God gives us impossible assignments. Solomon was very much aware of that when he was installed as king. Can you imagine filling Papa David's shoes? Listen to Solomon's words in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7-9. through And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? Solomon expressed several things in this prayer. First, he admitted, God, I'm inexperienced. I don't know what I'm doing. Then there was a general acknowledgement of the enormity of the responsibility. This is a great people with a great heritage, and I'm out of my element. And finally, and this really was the essence of his cry to God, God, I need wisdom. Will you give me what I need? Well, here's what I want you to remember today. God loves it when we're completely dependent on Him. What makes us competent to lead is the realization that we desperately need God. Crawford Loritz is Senior Pastor of Fellowship Bible Church
1: in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingthelegacy.org. You're listening to a best
0: of edition of Stacy on the Right. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk.
2: Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. It's um, thanks to everyone who's watching and listening to the show on all of the different mechanisms by which you can get the program head over to Stacy and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss anything right now. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest Justin Walker. He was a law clerk for Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who is the Supreme Court nominee the choice of President Donald Trump for a replacement for Anthony Kennedy and um, Justin Walker clerked from 2010 to 2011, and is an expert on law and politics who provides commentary all over uh, on cable news and radio all over the country. Justin, thank you for joining us today.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So I'm excited to talk to you because I'm I'm interested in your insights on what kind of person um, Judge Kavanaugh is. I actually enjoyed his portion of the announcement from the White House on Monday evening, where he talked about the history in his family, only child. He made a joke about, you know, what's it like to be an only child depends on who your parents are. And then he launched into this historical view of his mom being a teacher in inner city schools and then deciding to become a lawyer, going to law school and then going on to become a judge herself. Um, What was he really like?
6: Well, Judge Kavanaugh is... An incredibly kind and incredibly civil person. He served with 17 other judges of all ideological persuasions. They all consider him a friend. He's also had clerks of all ideological persuasions. Um, his, you know, I I I left uh, Judge Kavanaugh's chambers to go clerk for Justice Kennedy, but other of his clerks have clerked for. Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas on the right, and then also Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan on the left. So I think it it reflects that a lot of people like Judge Kavanaugh, even when they disagree with him, and and it's understandable because, you know, he is a devoted father. Um, He's a a servant, not just in his public service career, but, you know, he serves meals to the hungry through Catholic charities, and he tutors... Uh, underprivileged children. He coaches his little girl's basketball team. He's just a very humble, thoughtful, down-to-earth person um, who uh, was a lot of fun to work for.
2: So let's talk a little bit about um, the because you you mentioned that there were. So you've also clerked for Justice Kennedy, who was the swing vote. He was obviously. Put onto the court by a Republican. He is a Republican himself, but during his tenure on the court, he often swung depending on what his views were on a particular case and was able to move the country to the left socially through a number of Supreme Court rulings that right wingers like myself are not, you know, we're not as appreciative when he swung in in that direction. Do you feel like Judge Kavanaugh is an appropriate replacement for him? As, as liberals have called, they want someone who would be the next swing voter. Do you think that Kavanaugh would fill that, that slot?
6: Well, I think Judge Kavanaugh is going to be a great uh, successor. And I think people are going to find that in some ways he he's different than Justice Kennedy, uh, and in some ways he's similar. So I can talk about both of those things on, on, the, on the differences front. I think Judge Kavanaugh probably identifies a little bit more as a textualist, maybe a formalist in terms of um, his approach to the law. Justice Kennedy might identify a little bit more as what he would call uh, maybe a pragmatist. Mm. But then in terms of similarities, you know, I think the kind of civility I was talking about, uh, Justice Kennedy also certainly has. You know, he's the kind of person who gets along with all of his colleagues and, um, you know, has earned all of their respect. Uh, never has an unkind word for uh, for anyone really. He kind of gives even his opponents, uh, at least in terms of their motives, uh, the benefit of the doubt.
2: So that that's interesting because I think and so for me, I kind of wanted Amy Coney Barrett, not and nothing against. Judge Kavanaugh, I I really wasn't as familiar with him until like the very last minute when I realized he was in the running and Amy Coney Barrett was kind of out of the running. Um And then so since then, I've read a lot about his opinions and I found some places where I disagree, but that's going to happen with any justice, any any prospective justice on the court. I'm going to find something that I'm like, oh, I can't believe he, you know, he thought that was right. That's the nature of, you know, these people being human beings and having their own ideas. But as far as like Axios has this big uh, it's a graphic that they do where they have a baseline of zero and anything below or to the left of that is a person leaning towards the left side of the political spectrum. Anything to the right or above it would be someone who's a conservative or Republican leaning person. And they put Judge Kavanaugh up above Justice Roberts. Um, they have him right underneath Clarence Thomas, who is the most conservative justice on the court. Do you think that's accurate?
6: You know, there, there are studies out there. Um, you know, for example, there was a study that um, tried to do some statistical analysis of all the judges in the past 80 years, all the Supreme Court justices, uh, and you know, what they found is that uh, Justices Alito, Thomas, uh, Scalia um, are, and I guess, um, what is it then, Just Scalia, Thomas, Yes, were, and, and Roberts even, were um, considered four, statistically, four of the five most conservative justices of the past 80 years. And so wow. then they looked at Justice Kennedy, and it would, I think, maybe surprise some people, because as you pointed out, he certainly joined with the liberal colleagues on some very important and very controversial issues. Uh, but Justice Kennedy was actually the, in, around, he was the 10th most conservative justice of the past uh, 80 years. And so I think and we we're trying to figure out, well, you know, what kind of justice will, will Judge Kavanaugh be like? I think it's it's important to remember that the justice he's replacing um, was really one of the more conservative justices um, in quite a long time. Not to say that he was um, as conservative a justice uh, as uh, some of the more conservative colleagues that are on the bench. So, you know, I think. It's difficult. I think it's risky to make a prediction on where Judge Kavanaugh is going to fit on some uh, spectrum like that. And I also think, to some degree, the job of judging does not lend itself to a, a kind of uh, ideological scorecard. The way that you know, I understand, like the NRA scores um, and, and groups from the left do the same thing. They score members of Congress. Okay, here's mm-hmm. all of your votes, and then you get a you get a 35 percent rating. And you get an 87 percent rating. I, I don't think that that judging is supposed to be political. And so I think the only prediction we can, we can make with certainty about Judge Kavanaugh is that he will take very seriously the proper limits of, of a judicial role. Uh, the limits are you don't invent law. You try to look at the text of the law, its history and its structure, its precedents, and you try to apply the law that other people have created. Uh, so I, I think that's the kind of judge we can expect.
1: I
2: actually... I I tend to agree with you that it is very difficult to predict how judges are going to behave um, once they're on the bench because we don't know what cases they're going to hear, and so and we don't, also don't know the mood of the country and things that happen in the country that kind of impact what is acceptable to Americans and what isn't. Um, my next question has to do with so the er, people have been talking about stare decisis, you know this this idea that precedent is really important and that a person who respects that a justice who uses that as one of their deciding factors would say precedent was set with this case. And so we kind of go with that. But we also have a Supreme court that at one point said black people weren't human beings, you know, ruled on the the wrong side of segregation. You know, there've been many times that the Supreme court has been wrong and I don't mean slightly wrong. I mean, technically totally wrong and they've had to reverse <laughs> themselves, right? They're human beings. They're going to, these things are going to happen. So when, when, individuals on the left or the right come down and say well using stare decisis and and the the idea that precedent is important roe v wade is established law and it cannot be overturned it's kind of like they're unaware of the other times that the supreme court of the united states was wrong so whether or not we believe that roe v wade is right or wrong we can all agree i suppose i guess my question to you is that the Supreme Court has been wrong before and could reverse itself on almost anything.
6: Stacey, the Supreme Court has definitely been wrong before. You pointed out uh, Dred Scott decision just before the uh, Civil War, Plessy v. Ferguson, which allowed for Jim Crow segregation, separate doctrine of separate but equal. Um, and so then thank goodness that a precedent like Brown v. Board of Education came along in the 1950s. And overturned the precedent of Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, there, there are certainly going to be times when a judicial precedent should be overturned. I, I think that you know most justices on the Supreme Court, most judges around the country, think the precedents should only be overturned in extraordinary circumstances. And if you're looking to try to figure out what Judge Kavanaugh thinks about this question of precedent. He actually helped write an entire book about it. And it's not for the faint of heart. It's, <laughs> I, it's a thousand-page-long treatise on judicial precedent. He co-wrote it with 12 other distinguished judges, and I can't claim that I've read every word of all 1,000 pages. But um, I did give it a pretty careful look. And what Judge Kavanaugh says is that following established precedents has some virtues. It keeps the law settled. It furthers the rule of law. It predicts promotes consistency and, and, uh, and predictability. Now, as you pointed out, uh, under extraordinary circumstances, uh, precedents should be overturned. It has to be a reason more than just, I don't like that old decision. Mm-hmm. So he says in the book, you know, a simple change in personnel on the court um, shouldn't throw all former decisions open to reconsideration. But he, and I think every, every judge in the country, uh, would say that, you know, if a decision was wrongly decided in the past, and if there are special factors that are uh, counseling in favor of overturning it, and if the situation is extraordinary, uh, then then some cases, you know, Plessy D. Ferguson comes to mind, uh, certainly have to be overturned.
2: Well, I think... Uh, well, first of all, thank you for mentioning the book. I think that's actually going to come up in the Senate confirmation hearings. <laughs> I think the, the book, the contents of the book, um, his opinions on this are going to be the subject of many questions, and he's going to be able to answer them very well, it appears. He's very well prepared to handle that line of questioning based on the fact that he's written a book about this. Um, I think we can all argue about whether or not there's been as material or substantial change in Uh, information or, you know, enough to warrant overturning Roe v. Wade, I think the scientific, uh, you know, amount of information we have about fetuses and contraception and and different things that weren't as clear in the 70s, but are much more clear now. And the science is much more definitive now would, in my opinion, warrant that. But I'm not on the Supreme Court and I'm not going to be bringing any cases before the Supreme Court. So I guess we'll see what happens. I just I think it's a concern for me.
6: That makes two of us. That makes yeah. Sure
2: of a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, cause what I, so I watched a few of your, um, your media hits from before to kind of prepare for today. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, he's, you, you're so measured in what you say, but you also go back to the historical facts of, of, you know, what judge Kavanaugh has actually written in opinions and things like that. And so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of up with you on the idea that it can't just be, Hey, it's a bunch of new people on the court. You know, Trump has appointed new people. Therefore, anything we don't like gets reversed. But by the same token, I really am interested to see how Judge Kavanaugh is going to handle the questions about this. Because so there's some people on, on the left side of the aisle who have since this announcement kind of unmasked themselves as being completely opposed to him no matter what he says. Like he hasn't even had a chance to really weigh in yet. And they're already against him. And I'm looking forward to him putting forward a good showing, just not, not because he's going to be confirmed or he's not. I don't know the future, but just because he seems like he's pretty well prepared for this particular set of questions.
6: You know, Stacey, you're, you're so right. There was actually um, some kind of a press release or, or leaked talking points from one yes, of the groups The that uh, came out immediately <laughs> against him. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you thinking the same thing I am where it's just, yeah. uh you know judge XX fill yeah. in the blank and then it listed all these terrible things about the the judge uh, without even knowing who the judge was it was clearly written before uh president Trump announced that the just the nominee would be judge Kavanaugh so um you know there are going to be some people out there who don't have an open mind uh, I I you know that that's unavoidable I think though I'm hopeful that there're going to be some people out there a lot of people out there uh, inside the senate and outside it Uh, who, who do come to this question with an open mind and who are trying to find out, you know, what kind of judge is Brett Kavanaugh and also what kind of person is he? And I think they're just going to be blown away. I think that, I think they're going to, when they learn that he spent 12 years and wrote 300 opinions on the second most important court in the country, when they learn that the Supreme Court has endorsed his positions 13 different times, which is an unparalleled record of vindication by the Supreme Court, when they hear about his credentials and his approach to the law and his independence, and then also his personal character as a husband and a dad and a church member uh, and a mentor to clerks like me. Uh, I, I think they're really going to like the guy.
2: I, I'm I'm looking forward to the questions and his responses. He seems like just just observing him from the short speech that he's already given. Like he's a really almost happy-go-lucky soul who you know can handle the tough questions without getting flustered, and that actually triggers most people when they're trying to get you to respond and you just, you know, stay within your own zone and you're you're able to answer questions. It drives them nuts. And I'll be ready, not with popcorn, but maybe with some sushi and a bottle of uh, smart water, I'll be watching with, you know, gleefully as <laughs> if, if that's his approach, I'm going to really enjoy it. Um, so we're, we're at the end of the segment. And I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time out to come on the show. I know you're really super busy, um, you know, going on programs and answering these questions, but great to have your analysis. And thank you for your time today.
6: Oh, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Oh, sure. Hope to talk to you again soon. That's Justin Walker. He was Judge Brett Kavanaugh's law clerk from 2010 to 2011, national uh, commentator and and analyst for uh, legal issues and an attorney himself. It's great to have him on the program, and it's great to have you. Thank you for listening. We have one more segment, and we'll take your calls if you'd like. You can call us at 866-963-2037, weigh in on anything we've discussed so far. We will be diving into... Um, a little bit of the border asylum stuff. So let's keep it here. Just a minute with Stacey Washington. Turn on the news any time of day and stories of victimization flow. Every demographic group, every segment of society is a victim. Instead of seeing ourselves as righteous and forgiven, made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we believe the noise and accept a victim's mentality. Victims cannot accomplish goals or persevere through life's trials and tribulations. The New Testament is replete with verses about who we are in Christ. Guess what? You are not a victim. You are a victorious child of God. You are a branch of the true vine and a conduit of Christ's life. Jesus calls you friend. You are justified and redeemed. You are free from condemnation and set free from the law of sin and death. You are God's workmanship created to produce good works. You are accepted, redeemed, and you can do all things through Christ who is our strength. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com.
0: Listen to Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on Urban Family Talk.
2: She's sharp. I mean, did you hear that? Pointed. Remember that you're not only a Christian on Sunday.
0: And insightful.
2: Deception and lies have been accepted as the norm from the Democrats.
0: But most of all, she's on the right.
2: That scripture from the Bible that says the heart of the fool inclines to the left <laughs> just kept popping into my mind.
0: Stacy on the Right, now heard weekday afternoons from 2 to 4 Central on Urban Family Talk. Just as David's mighty man, Benaiah, chased down a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Lion Chasers champions uncommon men and women of faith who are unafraid to stand up and speak truth to power in these dark and evil days. Never before has there been such a need for people of faith to draw a line in the sand with a sword of truth. Lion Chasers, the intersection of faith and public policy with Lonnie Poindexter. Weekday mornings at 10 central on Urban Family Talk.
1: Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything.
3: It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express.
1: And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second
0: reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer.
4: That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve.
1: Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved, submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. It's right. a right. family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. you
2: know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome.
1: Come love others with 8 Days of
0: Hope. You're listening to a best of edition of Stacey on the Right. This is Stacey on the Right on Urban Family Talk.
2: For me, I find it so irritating. I I have covered wall to wall
1: the confirmation hearings in D.C. of Chief Justice John Roberts, of Samuel Alito,
3: of Elena Kagan, of Sotomayor. Uh, I've looked at this going back in history. Scalia was confirmed by a vote of 98 to, to nothing. The two people were missing that day. Scalia, who was obviously hard right,
2: Elena Kagan, uh, Sotomayor, confirmed with high 60s votes, right, in the high 60s in the Senate. 67 for one, 63 for the other. The, The Democrats
3: lost this fight on November 8th, 2016. The only question now is whether Brett Kavanaugh is qualified to take this office or is so radical that no reasonable person would put him on the Supreme Court. Trump deserves his... His
1: choice, just like Obama deserved his choices. Sotomayor belongs on that bench. So does
2: Kagan. So does Kavanaugh. Whoa! (laughs) So that feisty little contribution was from Megyn Kelly over on her show on Today, and uh, I thought that was interesting that she was so vehemently supportive of the idea that all of these different ideological perspectives are welcome and desirable and needed on the Supreme Court. I tend to be much more dogmatic. I feel like we should have as many hard-right Supreme Court justices as we can because they tend to stick with the rule and, and it's, it's the, the text of the Constitution. And for people who constantly point out to me, because I've, I've had this pointed out, oh, well, you're black. If that's the case, then we'd still have slavery. No, no, we wouldn't. Slavery being a part of the beginning of this country was a compromise that had to be made in order to form the imperfect union. The founders knew that this would be an issue that would have to be taken care of at some later point, but they needed an actual constitution, an actual country in order to get to that point. And, you know, it's not an issue of me not understanding the horrors of slavery, I'm descended from slaves. It's not that I can't get my mind wrapped around what it took for the founders, who some of them were slave owners themselves, to make that compromise. Absolutely not. So you can't get away with that because people are nuanced. Historical situations are nuanced. There's more to it than just cut and dried. They thought black people were three-fifths of a person. Nope, no, not at all. The reason I can have this viewpoint is because I've read the history on it and I understand what was going on at the time. And that's something you have to be able to do. We have to be able to detach ourselves from our emotions and the pain of not just slavery itself and the experiences of relatives and people who've gone on before who are related to me, who experienced the slavery or who experienced the Jim Crow South or who experienced, you know, the time after that. Look, A lot of Americans, most Americans have some complicated, difficult history as it pertains to how their family came to be American. That is the human existence. The bigger deal is whether or not you appreciate where you are right now, which is if you are in this country legally and you're a citizen, do you appreciate the constitutional protections that enshrine your liberties into a document that? is in itself inviolable unless we allow elected officials and lawyers and judges and people who get to, you know, make law unless we allow them to violate it. And those are the questions. Those are the things that we face with this. So, you know, um, I I thought that was an interesting clip that she pointed out that all of those justices had a right to be there because they were appointed by duly elected presidents. and, And it is the purview of the president of the United States to appoint justices to the Supreme Court fantastic perspective, if you will. Um, I don't obviously always agree with Megyn Kelly, but I thought that was interesting. So now I want to pivot over really quickly because the topic has been so enmeshed in the idea that Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. And I, I do, part of me wants to just get so excited because in my mind, I could see Justice Kavanaugh being confirmed to the Supreme Court and then making that choice. But then a part of me sees him being affirmed to that court and, and confirmed to that court and then saying, no, it's settled it's law. We're not going to reverse it. I'm not going to vote to reverse it. I could see both of those scenarios happening. Rather than getting mired down in which of those will happen, I'd rather talk about that. The, Star Parker has a piece out today where she calls abortion the symptom. And I want to talk about the symptoms. The symptoms being that Jason Riley has a piece up at the Wall Street Journal where he talks about the abortion rate. And this information is so depressing. Thank God we put our hope in 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 him because if we're putting our hope in men, it's a it's a losing proposition. So you've got the Pew Research Center survey taken last year found that of Hispanics, 58% of whites, and 62% of blacks now say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. That's a depressing statistic. Now, social scientists aren't sure why black attitudes towards abortion have changed, but one theory is that more blacks migrated out of the conservative Deep South and settled in other regions of the country, and they have more liberal views on reproductive rights, and so their attitudes changed when they moved to these more liberal areas. Another possibility is that people with higher incomes and more education tend to be pro-abortion. Since the early 70s, the socioeconomic status of blacks has increased exponentially. But if you want to look at what has been the true impact of it, get, to get outside of the ideas and what people believe and what, they, you know, what they'll say to a person who calls them up for an impromptu survey, let's just get into the raw numbers, there's been an outsized toll on the black community The black population post Roe v. Wade in New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than are born alive every year. The abortion rate among black mothers is more than three times higher than it is for white moms. And then a city health department, New York City Health Department report released in May shows that between 2012 and 2016, black moms terminated 136,426 pregnancies, only giving birth to 118,127 babies. By contrast, births far surpassed abortions among whites, Asians, and Hispanics. So, you know, for those who are preparing to shoot me a quick note about how I'm pulling down the black community, I'm not. I'm sharing this information because knowledge is power, and when we know better, we're supposed to do better. Nationally, black women terminate pregnancies at far higher rates than other women as well. In 2014, 36% of all abortions were performed on black women who are just 13% of the female population. So 13% of all of the women in this country are black, but black women have 36% of all of the abortions. Other low-income ethnic minorities who experience discrimination such as Hispanics abort at at rates much closer to white women than black women. The more plausible explanation may have to do with marriage. Unmarried women are more likely to experience an unintended pregnancy. Black women are less likely than their white, Asian and Hispanic counterparts to marry. Many of the would-be partners are sitting in prison. But it's also true that the racial divide in marriage, which started in the 1960s and has grown ever since, predates the mass incarceration of black men that took off in the 1980s. So what are we saying? I'm... I, I know what Jason Riley is saying. What I'm saying is that this is a heart issue. It's an issue for people to kind of, you have to make the decision for yourself that you're not going to get pregnant out of wedlock. There's, there are answers to this. It's, it's not like people are just magically waking up in the morning and they're pregnant. The other thing is you have to decide if you're going to be having intimate relations with a the person, then that person is going to be your husband. But it has to be that the person is your husband before you have the intimate relations. And that is so unpopular because what we've been sold as a bill of goods. It's liberating to be sexually active. It's liberating to give into your sexual urges. Just do whatever you want. Look at the proliferation of pornography in our country where most kids start watching pornography at the age of 12. Christian homes, non-Christian homes, inner city homes, suburban homes. All of our kids are inundated with images and content that tells them you're just an animal, just go have sex. And then if you get pregnant, Planned Parenthood's right here for you. They'll help you have an abortion. And so the parents are fighting that uphill battle, trying to keep their kids insulated from that while teaching them the proper form and function of intimacy between a man and a woman. Add on top of that, that we really have a party right now, the Democrats, who prioritize abortion over everything else. Notice they're not saying that Judge Kavanaugh, which he very well might be the deciding vote to strike down affirmative action, and it has been mentioned, he might be the deciding vote to strike down a number of different decisions that are currently moving their way through appellate courts that could possibly be heard and argued in front of the SCOTUS. They're not talking about that. All they're really focused on is what they call reproductive rights for women, which is the right to terminate a pregnancy that you don't want. They no longer argue that it's not a baby, it's a clump of cells, or that it doesn't stop a life. They're now just saying it's the woman's right to decide what is in her body. No one can impact that, not even the father of the unborn child, and that viability is not even an issue. So if the woman could have the baby early and have the baby put into you know an ICU incubator type situation and basically taken care of until they were viable outside the incubator and adopted by a waiting couple who want a newborn baby. A pro-abortion leftist will even say that violates her rights because she shouldn't have to even be burdened with the idea that a child is living that's hers somewhere out in the world if she has the opportunity to simply terminate it. And that's what she wants to do. It's a problem. It's just as wrong as when the Supreme Court said that black people weren't people or that Jim Crow segregation was okay. These are things, thorny issues that go straight to the heart of the depravity of man. And what we're dealing with right now is a group of people in America who have a very large bully pulpit who want to convince you that there are no consequences for us continuing to allow abortion on demand to be the thing that we support with our tax dollars, the thing that people support with their mouths, the thing that people are willing to tell a survey person, I support that. The more educated you are, the more likely you are to support the pro-choice position. That may be what helps you get off to sleep at night, you know, your, your ambient or your melatonin and that thought. But it won't stand up to the scrutiny that you'll receive at the judgment seat. So we've got to be clear. Abortion kills a life and it negatively impacts, basically destroys the life of the mother who has the abortion until they come to some place of regret and repentance and acceptance. And it's wrong. Whether or not it's the law of the land is immaterial. It was once the law of the land that I would be someone's property. That is no longer the law of the land. It was also once the law of the land that I couldn't own a gun or vote. That's no longer the law of the land. It could definitely be uh, fixed. It could definitely be fixed, but it has to start with a heart change within us. We can't just rely on the Supreme Court to make these kinds of moral judgments for us. More of us have to believe that it's wrong and know that it's wrong and be willing to say that it's wrong, even to our own detriment, before we're able to get past this place where it's currently a tax-supported law of the land. So, you know, that, there it is. Now, one more quick thing. I mentioned, and we'll probably delve into this a little bit more tomorrow, but I definitely wanted to give you guys just the high points. Asylum claims surging 800% despite a 30% drop in Central American murders and violence. Now, this is Paul Bedard. And he's writing, he's got, I'm just going to show the the viewing people on the, this is is charts and graphs, which you guys know. It's my jam. I love me some charts and graphs. Central American asylum claims are up. They've surged over 800% despite a massive drop in murder and violence in the region. And this is according to Justice Department and United Nations Statistics. So this is what supports the charge that immigrants are gaming the system, specifically immigrants from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Now, you know me. I say we deport all the folks who are here illegally, send them back to their home countries, and they start putting some of what they learned here into action in their home countries and make some improvements. And we send some troops and some money and some supplies and help those people set up and and start changing the places that they're coming from as opposed to trying to change our country into some socialist pit. That's my thing. Um, I'm not in charge. So you've got the rates still high of murder in the Central American countries, but it's lower. It's actually the lowest since 2004. So the people who are coming over are not really running away from a Central American nightmare. They're running towards the American dream. But when they get here, They start pushing socialism, which is why they can't stay. Sorry, but we just need to keep our constitutional republic, our representative republic, and we need y'all to go back to your own social countries and make those into republics too, not the other way around. That's
3: just the truth of it. That's just what it is. St. John 1 and 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember in the Word when Jesus was responding to Satan's antics? When Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with food, Jesus responded with himself. He responded with the Word. There are no new tricks in Satan's book. At the end of the day, his job is to create fear and doubt, and you know, steal, kill, and destroy. So if Jesus, who was fully God, responded to Satan with the word, why do we think that we can get along without the word? The Bible says, study to show thyself approved. Equip yourself with the word daily and watch your response to Satan's foolishness change. One of my coworkers, Pastor Joseph Parker, teaches that it's good to read at least three chapters a day. Sounds good to me. Today is a good day to start. With a heart for the urban family, I'm today's urban woman, Tony Johnson. Connect with us at urbanfamilytalk.com.